Father and our God, we bow before you again. Thankful that you have allowed us the privilege to gather together in this place to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you that you are our God and that we can worship you as you have prescribed in your word. We pray that your spirit might guide us into truth this day and teach us those things that we need to know so that we might better worship you and serve you. We pray, Father, that we would remember what Christ has accomplished for us as we continue to think upon why he came into this world and what he has accomplished for us. Let us be mindful of these things so that we might be moved to worship you even more adequately. We pray, Father, that as your word is preached, that your spirit might be pleased to take it and drive it into our hearts so that we might respond in a manner that is pleasing to you, that we might become more like Christ. We pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today may be the day of salvation, that they may see their sinfulness and cry out to the living God, repent of their sins and be cleansed from all unrighteousness and confess Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray for those that are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons. We pray especially for those that may need your healing hand upon their body. Pray that you'd be pleased to restore their health and they might testify of your goodness in their life. We pray, Father, that as this virus continues to spread, that you would protect our people. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to use it to wake up people to how short life is and their need to flee to Christ. Father, we know that you are in control of all things and none, nothing surprises you and that you have brought this about for a purpose. And we pray, Father, that it would not only be for judgment, but, Father, that it would be for salvation as well. We pray for those who join us by Internet this day, and we pray that your blessings would be upon them as well. Bless our time together, and this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We are approaching, as you know, December the 25th, when some, I might should say very few, will consider the birth of Jesus Christ. I wish I could say that most, but you know as well as I do, that most do not celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on December the 25th or any other day of the year. The majority will celebrate simply for the sake of celebrating. C.S. Lewis, who some of you have read his writings, he's wrote over 30 books, wrote many articles. He was a Brit, born in the late 1800s, lived to 1863, I believe it was, died relatively young in his 60s. But he wrote much about Christmas, and I would encourage you to go and read the things that he has written about Christmas, and I want to share something that he wrote about Christmas this morning. He wrote to the Brits, and he turned the word Brit around, Brit, Britain, around to where it was not a term. 
And in this, when you hear that word, you know he's speaking about Brits, even though he doesn't call them by name. And of course, I think they realized that he was speaking to them by turning the word around. But here's his edited version, because his other version is much longer, and you can read it on the internet, but let me read his edit one, edited one. In the middle of winter, when fog and rain most abound, they have a great feast, which is called Xmas, and for 50 days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relatives a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. Because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with a crowd of buying them so that there is great labor and weariness. But having brought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their house and find there the like card which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any of whom they have not sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to God for their labor at least is over another year. But when they find cards from any whom they have not sent a card to, they beat their breast and wail and other curse against the sender. Having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and the rain and buy a card for them. They also send cards to one another, suffering the same thing about, about the gifts as about the cards. And even worse, for every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him so that he may send one of the equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself, and the sellers of gifts, no less than the perjurer, becomes weary because of the crowds and the fog. So that any man that came to Nabaturian city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen upon Naturb. These 50 days of preparation is called in their barbarian speech, Xmas Rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens begin exhausted with Xmas rust, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much supper as other days, and crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave being internally disordered by the supper and the drinks and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on wine. For wine is so dear among the Nerbaturians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he's well intoxicated. Such are these customs about the Xmas, but a few among the Nyaturbians also have a feast separate and to themselves called Christmas, and it's spelled without a T, which is one of the same days of Xmas. And those who keep Christmas do the opposite from the majority of Naturbians, rise early on the day with shining faces, and go before the sunrise to certain temples where there are partakers of a sacred feast. 
And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knee. And certain animals and shepherds adorned the child. The reason for these images is given in a sacred story, which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas. For it appears to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. But would that Zeus would put into the minds of the Nurbaturians to keep Christmas at some other time or not keep it at all? For Xmas and the rush distracts the minds of even the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas. But in Xmas there's no merriment left. When I asked him why they endure the Christmas rust, he replied, O oh, stranger, it is a racket. But what of the Hecaturist says that Christmas and Xmas are the same is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards, have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priest tells about Christmas. And second, most of the Nyaturbians, not believing in the religious of the few, nevertheless send gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink, wear paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a God they do not believe in. Now Lewis uses his writings here to present several questions that I want you to think about this morning. Like the citizens of Nabia, the Christmas rush usually wears out many Americans. Is this Christmas rush a bit hypocritical on the part of Christians and non-Christians. In other words, if non-Christians don't believe in the birth of Jesus Christ, then why in the world do they go to the trouble to recognize the holiday at all? If Christians truly wish to honor the birth of Christ, then why wouldn't we be more willing to do away with the madness that accompanies the holidays in order to focus on Christ and give Him the honor and glory? Well, that's my Christmas sermon for the morning. And I want us to continue this morning to focus on Christ. Tonight we will continue to focus on Christ as we read scripture and sing hymns about Christ's advent but let us return to Mark which speaks of Christ in chapter 15 as he is on the cross and remember why Christ came into the world as the title of the sermon is Christ speaks of Christ coming being born to die Mark chapter 15, 
beginning with verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, Look, he is calling Elijah. Then some ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it to a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. One of the most significant verses in Scripture is quoted often at this time of the year. Matthew 1, 21. And she will bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Children, why did Jesus come into the world? That verse gives us the answer. To save his people from their sins. I don't know how many of you got to question number 49 in the child's catechism, but let me ask that question. Who will be saved? The answer, some of you know, is only those who repent and believe in Christ. Question number 50. What is it to repent? To be sorry for sin, to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. Now, during this time of year, they will tell you it's displeasing to Santa Claus. But Santa Claus can't do anything to you. But God can. And Scripture tells us that it is displeasing to sin. 51. What is to believe in Christ? To trust in Christ alone for salvation. 57. What does Christ do for His people? He does the work of who? Prophet, priest, and king. And then the next question, you know, why is Christ prophet? Because he teaches us the will of God. Why is Christ priest? Because he died for sins and prays to God for us. And then number 60, why is, he, why is Christ king? Because he rules over us and defends us. We have been looking at Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king as he has hung on the cross and suffered for the sins of his people. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels record this event in verse 38. When the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
This was the second miracle that happened on the cross. I guess we could say the third miracle if we count the salvation of the faith because that was truly a spiritual miracle. But I'm talking about, first of all, the miracle. Remember what it was, the first one? At noontime, what did it do, children? It turned dark. Now, you know, right now, it's almost noontime. If it turned as black as night right now, it would surprise us all. Well, that's what happened at the cross. That was the first miracle. The second miracle is what is spoken of here in verse 38. And the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom. Both of these events confirmed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And they have a message for us, a message of salvation for us. Now remember the main message in the darkness that came upon the earth at 12 noon was judgment. God's judgment upon man's sin. That God turned His back on His only begotten Son. He forsook His Son because His Son became sin for us. And then second, this darkness reveals the work of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, that He took our sins upon Himself. He propitiated the wrath of God. He's satisfied. He's pleased God. Now as we look at this second miracle of the curtain being torn from top to bottom, I want us to see two main truths. Now I don't want to get you confused. Some said I confused you last week with all my points. I got two points. My first point, and then my second point will have three points underneath it, so I don't want to confuse you. You understand? Two points, two main points, and three under the second point. The first thing that I want us to see, as far as the curtain being torn, is what was this curtain in the temple? We know something about the curtain because we're told about it in the Old Testament, first of all. The tabernacle was built, and in the tabernacle, God gave Moses specific instructions. He described how that tabernacle was to be built, and he described this curtain that was to be placed between the holy place and the holy of holies there in the tabernacle. It was not left up to Moses. God gave specific instructions. Now... Of course, the people, the Israelites, had heard about this curtain, but they never saw this curtain because they were not allowed to go into the holy place or the holy of holies. There was actually two curtains. There was a curtain on the outside of the holy place, and then there was this other curtain inside the holy place that separated it from the holy of holies. So the people only heard about it, and they heard about the description because we see that Moses had given this description to them. It was a magnificent curtain. And it was even more magnificent when the temple was built. First temple, of course, of Solomon. And then there was the second temple that was built by Herod. He refurbished the temple and he made it even greater. So uh, it was probably even higher. And it was a very beautiful piece of material that was linen fabric embroidered, embroidered with uh, red, blue, and purple thread. And this particular curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies, hanging there at the entrance of the holy of holies. Now, of course, in the holy place was what? In the holy place you had the showbread, 
on the table. You had the altar of incense. You had the lampstand. And the priest would go in there and he would perform all of his duties in the holy place. But yet the holy of holies was strictly off limits to all except the high priest. And the high priest was only allowed to go into holy of holies once a year. And he would go in to the holy of holies and there in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant, God's throne. It was covered with gold over the top and over the inside. Uh, it was called the mercy seat because on top of the Ark of the Covenant was two cherubim and they were arched with their wings over and their wings came almost to touching but they did not touch and right there is where God said I will meet with the people of God there in the Holy of Holies over this mercy seat where the two cherubims were facing one another. And it symbolized the readiness of these heavenly beings to do the will of God. In the ark was the table of Mosaic law, or the tablets of the Mosaic law. And there was also a pot with the manna, and Aaron's rod. So those were the things that were in the ark. So it was a very holy place representing who God was on his throne. And the high priest would enter into the holy of holies on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And once a year he would go in and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it there on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people of God. The, whole, the high priest would wear a robe and that robe was uh, garnished on the bottom with bells and he would constantly have to continuously move as he was in the Holy of Holies so that the people would know that he was still alive. Some say that actually a rope was tied to his leg in case God killed him so he could be pulled out because nobody was going into the Holy of Holies because they knew that they would probably be killed too if they went in there to retrieve him. But yet the high priest, we know, therefore, would enter with fear or was supposed to enter with reverence fear. Remember, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests and they went into the Holy Holy once a year. And the question that comes to my mind, why in the world was God so merciful and gracious and did not strike them dead when they went into the Holy of Holies because the priest was supposed to have confessed not only the sins of the people but he was confessed his own sins and here's two that were wanting to kill Christ but anyway that's left up to God why he didn't do that but he did show great mercy and patience to them so he would go in there to present this offering he understood the spiritual condition of the people or at least he was supposed to understand the spiritual condition of the people uh, there were times of great wickedness and he would still go into the holy of holies even knowing that the people had sinned greatly and he had been right in the middle of all that had transpired now this curtain was a barrier and it was to impress upon the people that sin was a barrier, that sin stood between them and the Holy One, and that their only access to God was hindered by sin. Therefore, the priest was to go in representing the people 
but yet he was to come with the blood. He was the one that was a foreshadow, a type of the priest that would come. Of course, speaking of Christ himself, who would make a once-for-all sacrifice so that man might have peace with the living God. So he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year for about an hour to offer the blood sacrifice on behalf of Israel. Now God had determined how he would approach him, how the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, having this sacrifice for himself as well as the people. So this curtain hung between the holy place, and the holy of holies. It was maybe 20, I mean 32 feet by 32 feet. Now, we can't be dogmatic on that, but that is the figure that most commentators give, even though we don't know for sure if it was taller when they built the new temple, the second temple by Herod. Some say that the curtain was as thick as a man's hand, four inches possibly, and could weigh hundreds of pounds, even maybe a thousand pounds. Therefore, simply impossible for a man or even men to tear it with their bare hands. Josephus states the various colors, charlotte, I mean scarlet, brown, blue, purple, embroidered upon it all the mysticals in the heaven, except accepting that the signs and representing living creatures. Now again, all three of the synoptic gospels speak of this curtain, but Matthew and Mark speak of it being torn from top to bottom. Now that's very important. The reason why that's so important, it again shows us the impossibility of men. If it's 32 feet high, they've got to get all the way up to the top, first of all, to tear it. Then how are they going to tear it? I mean, one hang on one side and the other one hang on the other side. Well, first of all, you've got to remember, the temple had temple guards, so not just anybody was allowed into the temple. And then you had the priests that were constantly serving in the temple also. So they would not allow anybody to come into the Holy of Holies and to tear this uh, curtain in two. So we know that this was something that was done that was a miracle, a supernatural event. And we have to remember, a miracle is something that is impossible with men, but not with God. We use the term miracle so lightly today that a lot of people don't believe in miracles because the way we use it. Oh, it was a miracle that I lived in that accident. No, it wasn't. It was God's gracious sovereignty and providence that you lived as a result of that accident, but it wasn't a miracle. A miracle is something that is impossible unless God does it, and we need to keep that in mind. Birth is not a miracle. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was a miracle, but the birth of you and me was not a miracle. That's something that God simply has ordained, that people will be born. So let us make sure that we use the term miracle in the right context so that people don't misunderstand miracles when we talk about miracles. This was a miracle. It was not impossible for man. It was impossible for man to do what took place at this particular time. It was God who tore this curtain from top to bottom. And it happened on Passover night, the highest holy day of the year. Now we're told in Acts chapter 6 verse 7 that many 
priest came to obey the faith. Now I think a possibility that it could have been some of those priests that were serving on that night when this curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now again, I can't be dogmatic on that. I don't know that for sure. But I think as a result of that happening and other things that were happening, they were able by the Spirit of God to put two and two together and they came to see that Jesus Christ was truly the Messiah. They had studied the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures. And when they began to see all of these things being fulfilled, they came to see that He was the Messiah. And as Acts tells us, they obeyed the faith. Now, all of this came together again for the very sake of God revealing Himself through Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And you have to remember, a few days later, what happened? A few days later, Christ rose from the grave. And other things also happened. So all of these things coming together convinced many, and of course only the Spirit of God can convince them, but the Spirit of God uses events to convince people convinced them, and they believed in Christ and were saved. Now our second main point is what was the means of this curtain being torn into two pieces? Now I want to answer this by giving you three answers to this question. There's our three sub-points, so hopefully you're following me. Second main point is what was the meaning of the curtain being torn into two pieces, and here's three answers to this question. First, a barrier presenting man from coming to God had to be removed. Now, all of the ceremonial laws forbid people from doing certain uh, things, forbid Jews, but also forbid uh, Gentiles and women from doing certain things. It didn't matter how rich or how famous one might be. All of the Jews had to submit to God's ceremonial laws. God's covenant people had to bring their offering to the priest. They could not go to God without going through the priest. They could not even go into the temple and offer their sacrifice. They had to give it to the priest who would offer it there at the temple. And then he would offer it to God in the holy place those two main rooms that no one went into except for the priest and then the holiest room by the high priest. So these two rooms were screaming out, stay out, don't come near, you're not qualified to enter into these rooms. And the Jews knew that. They knew that God was serious about the things that He had commanded. I mean, all they had to remember is Eli's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and how they offered strange fires, and God took care of them. Or Uzzah, as he was simply walking along beside the ark, and when the ark, uh, the cart and the ark looked like it was going to fall, he reached out and touched it, and what happened? He died. Why? Because God said no one was to touch the ark. God rather the ark fall on the ground because the ground is not sinful. Man is sinful. And he didn't take God serious and he likewise died. 
So the curtain was the last great barrier to prevent men from coming into the presence of God. And at the death of Christ, we see that this curtain was torn in two. It meant that the offering of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God was accepted by the Heavenly Father. It was the end of the whole Old Testament sacrifice. What God had required under the Old Covenant had come to an end forever. No more lambs, no more bulls, no more sheep, no more goats, no more doves, no more grain, no more meal, no more wine, nor incense. None of those things would ever have to be brought to the temple again and be offered. Nothing had to be slain anymore for the Passover. There was no longer a need for an escape goat to be driven out into the wilderness. The blood sprinkled at the mercy seat no longer had to be done. There was no need for a priest. There was no need for a high priest. Jesus Christ had done away with all of that. And we know that God later completely demolished the temple in 70 A.D. It was all over. There was no more three feast days a year there in Jerusalem. There was no more need for Levites, nor tribes. God was doing away with all of the old customs, all of the old co uh, covenant, all of the ceremonies. Why? Because Christ had fulfilled it. The promised Messiah, the Son of God, had made the final sacrifice. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9.26 When Jesus Christ was crucified, the animal sacrifice ended forever. And God revealed it by tearing the curtain from top to bottom. Jesus Christ had opened the way to the holy of holies by shedding his blood. It was the perfect sacrifice. The barrier was gone. All was open to God forever due to the death of Jesus Christ. The second answer the living way was now open for man to come into the presence of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have permanent, direct access to God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in chapter 9 when he talks about the temple curtain that had closed the way to the holy place of God. But then he goes on and he says, Now the last Adam, who's the last Adam, children? Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. He has opened the way. So when Adam sinned, what happened? There came that barrier. There was a barrier between God and man. And it stayed there, it remained there, and that curtain represented that barrier. But then we see that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came, and He did away with that barrier, that curtain. And in Hebrews, the apostle assures Christians that due to the work of Jesus Christ, they have now a greater privilege than even the high priest priest. 
Now the high priest was looked upon as the man in Israel. And Paul tells us there in Hebrews that we have a greater privilege even than the high priest. He says in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, we have confidence in entering the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body. Now he's saying that the tearing of the curtain in the temple by God was a symbol of the tearing in death of the soul of Christ from His body. And that through His death, they would come into the presence of God. And they no longer had to enter fearfully because God was pleased to accept those who are in Christ. That's the reason why Paul goes on and he tells us later, we are able to cry, Abba, Father. He's like our daddy. He's like our papa. Knowing that he loves us and he wants us to come to him. And we can go to him in boldness because of the blood of Christ. We have instant access into the throne room of God. Now that means if I come in the right way, I can come at any time, anywhere, as often as I like, for any reason that my Heavenly Father will not turn me away. He's never too busy. He's always there to welcome me into His arms. And this is an incredible privilege to have this kind of access in the Holy of holies into the presence of God who is holy, holy, holy. Now a lot of people like the access to the president. I mean, if I got a call tomorrow and the president said, come visit with me, I'd go visit with him. I mean, that's a privilege, right? To go up and be able to go into the White House and sit down and have a cup of coffee, I guess. That's a privilege. And I would talk about it when I, I came back. Man, I got a call from the president. I got to go and sit there in the White House. That's a wonderful privilege to have access to the president. But, but this privilege that we have with God is so much greater, you can't even compare it. I've shared with you before the story about Abraham Lincoln, and he had a son. His son's name was Todd. And there in the White House, of course, is where the president lives. They also have their meetings and everything. But Todd saw the White House as his house. He didn't see it as the White House. He didn't see it as an important place where offices, and he roamed around the White House and went wherever he wanted. Even though there were guards standing at doors, he'd walk right past them, and they wouldn't do anything to talk because they knew Todd lived there and, and that he was the president's son. And one day, Abraham Lincoln was having a very important meeting there in the White House with all these dignitaries, and Todd comes bursting into the room and walks right up to his dad and jumps in his lap, and he has a toy and said, Dad, fix it. And Abraham Lincoln kept talking, but began to fix the toy. Now why? Why could he do that? 
because this was his son. And his son had that freedom. He had that access to his dad to come into his presence, to sit in his lap. And we have the same access. When something is troubling us, we can go into God's throne room and we can crawl into his lap and we can say, Father, fix me. I hurt. There's these problems. I need strength. I need this. And he takes us into his arms and he loves us. And he says, fear not for I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will carry you through this valley. I will help you and, and love you and take care of you. That's what every child of God Every child of God has. When, when I prayed this morning at the beginning of the sermon, none of you, not one of you thought, wow, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? That he's talking to God, that he's talking to our heavenly cre creator, the one that has created us. I mean, none of you thought that. We all just accepted that. Why? Because we know what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches and that we have such a wonderful privilege. But it's an extraordinary privilege that is now a common experience for all of us who have believed in Christ. That God came down from heaven and, and dwelt among man, born in a stall, dwelled with sinful man. That the Word became living the creator of the universe became flesh that you and I might have fellowship with this one who created the universe. One great privilege of being a son of God is that we can go into the throne room of heaven with boldness at any time because there's no longer a great thick curtain that keeps us out. We should never think that our problems are too insignificant to bring to God or that we have done something so terrible that God will not listen to us, that He would not hear our prayers. We now have a personal relationship with God through His only begotten Son and that we are a member of God's family. We are heavenly citizens. We have access to the king. I'm a child of the king. We need to sing that more often. For that's what we are. Too often we worry about what other people think about us. You don't have to be a Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Mark Zuckerman or Paul McCarthy, or any other famous rich person. Matter of fact, I feel sorry for those people. I don't want their problems. I don't want their worries, and I don't want their money. For I have something that they don't have, and that's access to God. Money cannot buy that. I have the most important access in the world and they don't. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. Casting all 
my cares upon a loving, wise, all-powerful God that can do something about them. They can't. God can. And then the third answer. It means that a new hope for every Christian has been confirmed. Not only is there a barrier removed and the way is open, but tearing the curtain means that our hope of eternal life has been confirmed by God Himself. I mean, it isn't wishful thinking. It isn't something that we're hoping. It's a reality. Those in Jesus Christ possess this hope. He is an anchor for our soul. I mean, behind the curtain was only the Ark of the Covenant. But now that the curtain has been torn and the entrance wide open, there is something else behind that old curtain, a mighty anchor, an anchor that is firm and secure. It means that I will be kept from destruction upon the rocks. I'm telling you that the living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has an anchor in heaven and is joined with an invincible chain, an unbreakable link. It doesn't even possess a weak link. That anchor and that chain was forged at Golgotha and grounded in the inner sanctuary behind that curtain by our Lord Jesus Christ, who has entered on our behalf as the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6 speaks about that. He is joined to us by a bond that can never be severed. He saved us to the utmost. And we are joined to Him every day. So therefore, when the storms of life comes, that anchor holds firm. Hebrews 6 tells us that our anchor is firm upon, it is lodged on the very presence of God, and He holds it tight. As we sing in the hymn, when darkness hides its smiling face, I rest on His changing grace in high and stormy gales my anchor holds within the veil that is good news this is what the angels were telling the shepherds on that night praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men What good news is the tearing of the temple curtain preaches to all who struggle with a sense of their own weakness and of their own failures. Often we cry out like that man there in Mark chapter 9 verse 24. I believe, but help my unbelief. Deep inside, we we believe, we know that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We know that He's our Savior, and we are joined to Him forever. And we know that we are loved by Him. But when we begin to think upon the stupidity of our past, or else the accuser brings to our mind those things 
those, those sins that are in the past, those things that condemned us, and when we remember with shame the broken promises, the ugly words, the unkind deeds, and how we failed others, and how we failed God, we are unable to see God's smiling face. When we get locked in on those things, we begin to doubt whether we even are Christians at all. That's when we must remember what Jesus Christ did for all of those sins and our guilt. He paid the price. He suffered in our place for our shame and our blame, propitiated the wrath of God. Therefore, God cannot be angry with us anymore. This great curtain was torn from top to bottom to show that we have hope that is greater than our shame, greater than our guilt, that it has been erased by Christ, paid for. If our faith is focused on Jesus Christ, our anchor, fixed rock of ages, then we have a hope that even our shame cannot erase. If Jesus Christ is our anchor of our soul, we rest in Him. Because our anchor cannot hold, or our anchor can hold against any storm, even the storm of a guilty conscience. Jeff Thomas tells about an old Scottish believer who went to church one Lord's Day, feeling so low because of his sins when the communion bread began to pass around and it got closer and closer to him, he began to think, I will not take it. I will let it pass by to the next person thinking that he was unworthy. Then he saw a young woman, a few pews in the congregation ahead of him, who also was refusing to partake and she broke into tears and her tears jarred him back to the truth of the gospel that he himself needed to recall and therefore he whispered. Others heard him say to her, Take it, miss. Take it. It is meant for sinners. And he also partook. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. To remember what Christ has done for us. That he has forgiven us of all of our sins. That's the deeper meaning of the tearing of this curtain. Paul said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace 
in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who believe in Christ. What does it mean, no condemnation? Exactly what it says, no condemnation. The road to heaven is open to anyone who believes in Christ. At any time, anywhere, it is open. God has opened it. And therefore, it is possible for you to feel a great weight of sin to the point that you would wonder if Christ would receive you. Perhaps you think that your sin is too great, that your transgressions are too many, that even Christ cannot help you. Many feel that way. And in truth, we would all feel that way if we had a better understanding and a better view of how bad our sins really are. But the message of the cross and the message of the curtain is, fear not, do not let your sins keep you away because they have been paid for. Christ has paid them at Calvary. God has taken the initiative. He has removed the barrier to heaven. Come to Christ. See how great He is in mercy. Your sins may be great. They may be many. But the payment made was made by a great substitution that far outweighs all of your sins. You may be a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. Fear not. Trust in Him. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people. From their sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for such a great Savior, a great substitute, one who was born to die so that we may live. Oh, how we pray that your Spirit would work, would open eyes, would open ears, so the truth might be received this day. We pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.